Great to see you guys. We are in the book of Genesis. If you're new, um, tackling the entire book, um, we're going to be in Genesis 1 for one final Sunday. Um, you can turn open to Genesis 1 right now. Uh, we look at the book more kind of verse by verse on Wednesday nights right here, 7 o'clock. Uh, chapter 1 is a very intriguing chapter. Uh, one book I read on it by John Lennox, he called it Seven Days That Divide the World. I say it's seven days that divide Christians because we all have our own take on it. So on Wednesdays, I'm giving you mine, um, which is the authorized version. So <laughs> you're welcome to hear that one. Jesus, we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you that we can come boldly before your throne of grace and obtain our help in our times of need, that the prayers that were offered this morning have affected you, have caused, Lord, things to change. And we look forward to how that works practically for us, for our fellowship, for uh, this community that you have brought us into. And we pray that we would be, uh, we'd be a Jeremiah 29 community that prays for the peace of Grant's Pass, that plants gardens in Grant's Pass, that creates uh, a beautiful living space for others, that our effect here would be one that is good. So even today, Lord, equip us, enable us to be good neighbors, good workers, good um, friends, good dads, good moms. Lord, we need your spirit, your word. We need you to hover over the chaos of our coming week and bring order to it. And so equip us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine for one second, let me set up this text this way. Uh, imagine that you have a professor or a teacher or a boss or parent or somebody that's in a place of power, influence in your life that you respect. And you think that this person, this teacher, this professor, this boss, whatever it is, holds a low opinion of you. So you're expecting bad opinion, bad news, kind of maybe you're going to flunk the class, maybe you're going to get fired, something like that. But one day you go and you're about ready to head into wherever this guy's at. Maybe it's a room, maybe it's a class. And you hear voices talking in the room. And so you stop and you start to listen at the door. You eavesdrop. You terrible sinner, you. <laughs> and as you're eavesdropping, you hear your name. And instead of, you're a flunky, you're terrible, we're gonna fire you. Instead of hearing that, this professor, this teacher, this boss, whatever, says, oh, man, top of the class. Oh, what potential. Oh, best worker. Oh, man, most loyal friend that I have. Would that change that relationship? Would that change the way that you walked out that week, that month? Well, that may even change your life. Well, where we're at right now in Genesis is I think it's really important to recover what this book meant 
to the original audience. It was not written to Americans living in the 21st century, although we get all kinds of help from it. The original audience was 3,500 years ago, a group of ex-slaves who had just been freed from Pharaoh and are now wandering in a wilderness in the Middle East. And so the message, in order to understand what it means, you have to go back and kind of grab that. And these ex-slaves... They had been under for generations the thumb of this guy named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh thought he was God. And Pharaoh thought because he was God, everybody served him. And so he had put this entire Hebrew nation under his thumb to bake bricks to make his buildings. And when he didn't like something that they were doing, he would just kill them. In fact, he became afraid of them because they were so strong and he started killing all of their babies. So he was a guy that felt like, I can do whatever I want to this group of people. They have no rights, they have no privileges. They can't say no to me. I can control them, I can dominate them. And when I'm done with them, I can cast them out. I can dispose of them like last night's garbage. So that's how really for generations, this group of people had viewed themselves that Pharaoh, the God, essentially looked at them this way. You are slaves, you are expendable. I'll do whatever I want to you, right? With that in mind, now listen to this conversation that if you would, they eavesdrop and it's a heavenly conversation. So listen to this. It's verse 26 of Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, not singular, plural, not a Pharaoh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. How many times has image come up here? Very important. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. How radical is that? Their paradigm for generations had been this Pharaoh who had looked at them like a commodity, looked at them almost like a factory. Produce bricks. That's all you are good for. Make me bricks. When you can't make bricks anymore, you are useless and I'm going to get rid of you. And he felt like it was his divine right to use them, kill them, abuse them, genocide, ethnic cleanse. It did not matter because he, he was God. And then all of a sudden, God, they overhear this conversation and God says, no, you're not a commodity. You're not to be bought and sold. You're not to be used. You're not there to produce something. You are my 
image bearers. You get to rule and reign over earth. You are kings and queens, my image bearers. Do you think this changed the way they viewed themselves? It was supposed to. Now they battle that and I talked about that last week. It was supposed to change them. And I'll say this, I think these verses right here are probably the most important verses when you look at Western civilization. That what we believe, what we hold dear as a nation, as the Western civilization, what we hold dear, they track back. This is the rocket boost that gives many of the things that as a culture, as a people, we say, this is what is right. It all tracks back to right here. So here's what I wanna do. It's gonna be a little bit intellectual today, no doubt, but I wanna define what it means to be image bearers. Number two, I wanna say, this is how you display that. Thirdly, I wanna look at the history. Like something as Christians we can be super proud of is this history of the Imago Dei. It's the Latin of image of God, of the Imago Dei. And then lastly, what are the implications of that? Okay, so we learned this. How does that change how I live my life? All right, so first of all, what does it mean to be the image of God or the Imago Dei? What does that mean? Some people will say it's some kind of attribute that humans have, right? When we look at ourselves compared to the animal kingdom, that we have these certain kind of attributes that set us apart as image bearers, as the Imago Dei. So intelligence or culture or the fact that we can plan for the future of our, our, like, our, like animals don't plan for the future of their kids, really. So we can plan for the future of our kids. Animals can plan for their own future, right? Squirrels go hide nuts. They can't find them later, but they do that. What are they doing? <laughs> Trying to find them. Right? So yeah, there's some planning, but we plan actually for our next generations. Well, there can be that line of reasoning. I, I don't believe that's quite right. I'll give you one example. Intelligence. So does that set us apart as image bearers? I don't think so. Because are animals intelligent? Oh, totally. Like the more you read about animals, the more you're like, wow. Did you know the Arctic tern? It's this tiny little bird. The Arctic tern every year migrates 44,000 miles. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's the longest migration of any animal. Every year, 44,000 miles. They estimate that um, they live for 30 years. So an Arctic tern will travel 1.3 million miles in its lifetime, right? Here's what the, the most amazing statistic about an Arctic tern that I learned was this. The male species of the Arctic tern does that 44,000 mile migration without asking for directions or getting lost. <laughs> it's, un, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> So you have this, the monarch butterfly. Do you know the monarch butterfly migrates from Canada all the way down to Mexico? But here's what's really amazing. It does it across four generations, right? So mom and dad start in Canada. They make it to whatever Kansas. They lay an egg. They die. The next generation becomes a little caterpillar, eats a bunch, metamorphosizes, becomes a butterfly, picks up, and then just completes the route to Mexico. I mean, that's amazing. 
How does he know which direction to go? How does she know which direction to go? Up, down, south? I mean, where does it, how does it know which, where it's at in the migration route? It's unbelievable to me. It'd be like me taking my three-year-old Myron to Tijuana and saying, 1320 Walker Road, Grants Pass. See you there, bud. Right? Man up. <laughs> That's insane. So we can start arguing like over, well, is it intelligence? Is that what it is? I don't think so. Is it a soul? So in chapter two, when we get there, it says that God breathes into man and he becomes a living, the Hebrew is nefesh. Is that it? He becomes a living soul? Well, the same word nefesh is used for animals in chapter one, verse 21. I don't think so, right? Here's what I believe. And it's, I'll try to make why it's so important. It's not an attribute. It is a status that every single human is, period, an image bearer of God. Now, if you don't do that, here's what can happen. If we start making it some kind of an attribute like intelligence, then what happens to people that aren't that intelligent? Is there an IQ test that if you're above this IQ, then you are an image bearer, but if you're below this IQ, then you're not? Oh, it gets really weird then. And the problem is, that's really the movement of our country right now. You read bioethics, that's what they're saying. Peter Singer, Google his name. We'll talk a little bit more about him later. He is the head of bioethics at Princeton. He would say that. Like, if you're this smart, you're important. It's capacity, not status. I believe what's being said right here is that every single human is, because of status, an image bearer of God. Every person sitting in this sanctuary is an image bearer of God. You are the Imago Dei. Whether you graduated summa cum laude of high school or if you graduated, I couldn't care about high school. It does not matter. You are, period, an image bearer of God because it is a status that God gives to every single human. And that is something that as believers, we have always believed. Number one, the Imago Dei is a status given to every single human. Number two, how do we display that then? And there's a bunch of things I thought about doing on this. I'm going to do one, and it's attention. And you kind of get it in this text. We'll look at it more on Wednesday. But, but the text says this essentially. It, it says that, that we both steward earth as stewards, like, like it'd be like you and me caretaking somebody's home. So, so there's this stewarding, stewarding of earth, but on the other side of that, it says that we are rulers of earth. So there is this kind of tension between um, stewarding creation without ever worshiping creation, right? So let me try to explain that a little bit. Um, we steward creation. So there is in each one of us, this, this like knowledge that we are taking care of somebody else's house. And so if you took care of somebody else's house and their dog got hurt or their cat got hurt, wouldn't you feel a little bit of responsibility for that dog or cat? Yeah. And don't we feel that? Like you see a deer get hit and it's, bro it's broken its leg. What do we do? We want to help it. We call wildlife images. Hey, there's this deer that has a broken leg. Can you come out and help? Well, if you take a deer to wildlife images, do you know what happens to that deer? Yeah, Clarence the cougar. That's what happens because they get so many broken deer, all right? So you better just let him have his own, like maybe he heals and does well on its own. Uh, but we have that in us. There's like this, oh, when a whale gets beached in Florence, what happens? 
Man, people pour out there to try to push that whale back into the ocean, most of them from Eugene, but let's push this whale back in, right? We want to save the whale, right? I have never seen a whale like poke its head out and look at, you look like a beached human. Can I help you? That just doesn't happen. Right? We make movies, free willy. Like, oh, they shouldn't be in captivity. I don't think the whales are making like about Charlie Manson, free Charlie. They don't care. But there is in us this tension, like we're stewarding this thing. We're supposed to take care of it. And, and that, that is really, really healthy. That we are supposed to steward well this incredible gift of creation. So, so that's, that's the one side. But then the other side of this is this, this rule that we are, because of the Imago Dei, we are in a different class than the animals. That we have uniquely been stamped by God with this incredible thing, this value that says you're different than the rest of the created order, okay? And I think I can prove it. I think I can prove innately we know that even to the most ardent atheist tree hugger. Here's how. So let's say um, times get tough. Finances are difficult at the Heavenly House. They're not, I'm doing really good, thank you. Uh, but times are tough, let's just hypothetically. So. I have to start making some decisions about my house. And right now at my house, I have a horse, not in my house, but at my house. I have a horse, I have a goat, I have a bunch of chickens, I have two cats, I have a goldfish, I have seven children, and I have my wife, Charity. Okay? So I, I have these, these living nefeshes, if you would, these creatures that are kind of in my home and financially, I gotta start making some decisions about how I, you know, I can't take care of all these, all right? So who do I get rid of? Is anybody saying, charity your wife, send her packing, man. Now, if I do a, if I just simply do a financial statement, who costs me the most? All right, my wife's gone. She costs way more than the horse, right? It's like a herd of Clydesdale. So just, I'm sorry, charity, dude, look it, you know? No one's doing that. Why? Because we understand fundamentally the Imago Dei. If I'm really honest, the horse is often more obedient than one of my children, right? <laughs> but I'm not like, okay, free on Craigslist, Myron, right? I would go to prison, but free on Craigslist, horse, cat, goldfish, nobody's saying anything about that. See, fundamentally, we know, how, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we've got stewardship, but, but also humans, humans rise above everything else. Well, Matt, that's obvious. Oh, not anymore. Peter Singer, read his book, Practical Ethics. If you just are absolutely wanting to have a terrible day, read that book. <laughs> right? Here's what he says. I've quoted this before. He says, a healthy pig is more valuable than a handicapped child because it's, it's all about capacity. What, what will that healthy pig versus Handicapped child, what will it contribute to society, right? The handicapped child is going to be a burden on society where the healthy pig is gonna put bacon on your plate. That's essentially his argument. And he says this, and he's been arguing this for a while. He says that we should, parents should have 30 days to decide whether a baby should live or die. You got a 30 day trial period. Is this inconvenient or not? Do we want to keep this child? He says that, that 
number probably should grow to three years. Yeah. Now he is a leading voice in bioethics at one of the premier universities in our land. And this is what he's writing. So you have the Imago Dei, what, what we just say, man, it's so precious. You have him now saying, oh, I don't know. What are they contributing to society? Here's what's really fascinating to me about Peter Singer. His mom got Alzheimer's. Now, now <clears throat> what is she contributing to society anymore? Guess what? He didn't get rid of her. Didn't take her out back with a gun. No, you know what he did? He put her in the best hospital he could. Got her the best care possible. So sometimes we get these, like, let, let's have this dialogue, you know, in the ivory tower of Princeton, but really when we try to walk it out still, there is this glimmer in us that we all know the truth. There is the Imago Day. So the believers, we're supposed to display this great balance where we understand, yes, we are stewards. We're in God's house, if you would, and we've been made rule over it and we care for creation and we love creation, but at the same time, we never worship it. All right? And here I'm gonna jab some people. And here, matt at edgewaterfellowship.org, okay? <laughs> and I know it, and I thought about not doing it, but I just wanna bring this down to very practical levels. So um, dogs in America live better than 90% of the kids in Africa. Do you know that? Dogs in our country, home, Three square meals, vet checkups, medication, better than 90% of the kids in Africa. Now, I'm not saying get rid of your dog. I'm, not saying any, I'm just saying this is just a fact of life. It's a fact of life, okay? So I had a, I had a dog, Chloe, um, and, and we took care of her. But I got in a heated discussion with a lady who was very mad at me because I didn't give her heartworm medication. She lived till she was 12 years old, you know, lived a happy life. Now she is, I don't know. Golden fields, chasing squirrels. I don't know. I don't know what God does with animals when they're done, but you know, she's no longer with us. Lived a long life, but when she was young, why don't you have her on heartworm medication? She got very mad at me. And this was my answer I gave to her. I said, here's what I think. Matt Heavily's this, this is me only. Other people disagree, I don't care. I, I, I said, this is what I think. I said, when every child in Africa has a net for malaria, that costs $2.50, and every child in Africa has access to malaria medication. Pills cost about 50 cents a piece. When that happens, then talk to me about heartworm medication, monthly heartworm medication for my dog. Until then, my extra money is not going to go to that. I'm going to take care of my dog. I'm going to feed my dog. I'm going to love my dog. But, but all the extra stuff, I can't do that personally. Okay? Why? Because I think, yeah, I got to take care of this dog. And I got to steward it well. And I love that dog. And we had fun with that dog. But... At the end of the day, at the end of the day, for me, the Imago Day always rises up. And if I'm ever going to take extra time, extra finances, extra resources, I'm going to pour them into other human beings because of the Imago Day. Does that make sense? And I know I'm going to get in trouble for it, but I'm okay with that. Hopefully we'll make friends on this next point. Okay? <laughs> the history, the history of the Imago Day. So there is like one of the national pastimes of certain groups in America is bashing Christianity, right? So Christopher Hitchens, who I actually liked, um, he's an atheist author. Um, I read him as reasonable. I had some great, great uh, dialogues with Doug Wilson, who's a, a pastor in Idaho. And they had these, they had these great debates. Um, I, I actually like him, um, but he wrote a book 
and he's now passed away. He wrote a book and it was titled this, God is not good, how religion poisons everything. I'm like, really? And so there's these arguments in it that, that are pretty easy to take down. Like one of them is like, all war is caused by religion. Well, there's a professor that actually studied that. He found that no 10% of wars are caused by religion. The other 90% are just the typical stuff. Land issues, power struggles, money, you know, money, money, money. There's, 90, there's 88% right there, just money. So um, th- there's these ideas like, you, like Christianity is bad. It's horrible. But, but it makes me laugh that Christopher Hitchens can write that book God is not good, how religion poisoned everything. He can only write that in America or the West, right? Try to write that in, in Saudi Arabia. Allah is not good. What's gonna happen to you? You're dead, right? So it's actually the Imago Dei, the, the, the understandings of the Bible that give him the freedom to say that, but that's just a whole nother point. So anyways, so, so you have this um, idea now that's like, ah, oh, Christianity's bad, it's done all this bad stuff. I say, no way. Let's rerun the clock 2000 years Before Christianity, what did society look like 2,000 years ago? Before all these influences that we just take for granted now, we don't even, it's the water we swim in. It's like a fish, trying to tell a fish about water. It's like, what? Well, this is just a, it's, we take it so for granted now. But let's rewind the clock, 2,000 years. Let's go to the big thinkers 2,000 years ago, guys like Aristotle. What did Aristotle, Greco-Roman, the predominant, civilization at that time. What did Aristotle think about some stuff? What do you think about slavery? You know, he's the final in the line. Socrates, then Plato, then Aristotle. He is building on their philosophy. He is the pinnacle of Greek philosophy. What do you think about slavery? Well, I'll give you a quote. Here's what he says. And I quote, some races are too emotional. They cannot reason. They have no capacity for it. Thus, they must be made slaves. That was a predominant thing. You're just emotional, so you can't reason well. So guess what? You should be a slave, which is essentially Peter Singer today. You don't have these capabilities, and because you don't have these capabilities, you're not actually the Imago Dei. It's just rehashing those same ideas, okay? How about infanticide, where, where kids are just killed, which is Peter Singer? We have a letter, it's, a, it's a, a businessman who's on a trip 2,000 years ago, and he's writing back to his wife who, who lives somewhere else, and he's like in, in, in Greece, he, and the letter is very like um, informal, hey, how are you doing? How's the weather there? How's your mother-in-law? Um, the weather down here in, in Greece is great. And then he adds this byline, oh, by the way, when you give birth to the child, their child, if it is a girl, leave it in the field to die, your loving husband. Yeah, is that crazy? It's not even like, it's just like happens. Oh, oh I, I forgot to mention one thing, kill the baby. That's 2,000 years ago. That's before Christianity. What? That was normal. We didn't want it. What do you do? That's, you just leave it in the field. Let it die. Okay. H- how, about, how about women? What was the thought of women 2,000 years ago? I'll go to Aristotle again. Let me give you a quote by him. And it's a quote by Aristotle not Matt Heverly, is a quote by Aristotle. If you want to get mad at somebody, get mad at Aristotle. Thank you. Okay, so let's go. Quote, reason, oh, excuse me, in children, reason is present, but undeveloped. In women, 
Reason is present, but unused. <laughs> Don't laugh, men. Do not laugh. You should be like, I hate the Aristotle. <laughs> right? Leading thinker of the day. Yeah. It was common in a Greek wedding when the, the bride and the husband are getting married, it was common for them to say this to the woman. Hey, when, not if, when, not if, when your husband cheats on you with a prostitute or a woman of easy virtue, know this, it's not because he does not love you, he's just gratifying his passions. That's at a wedding. I mean, could you imagine me doing that? Like people pack in Southern Oregon, I'd be dead. Somebody just shoot me. What? Bang. You can't say that, right? That's insane. That's the culture before, that was Western culture before Christianity. But, but it's not even that. Like, this always comes back up. Peter Singer is just rehashing these same ideas Aristotle had. He's just bringing them back up now. Go back 100 years to a guy named Nietzsche. Nietzsche was an atheist. He's one of the most honest atheists I've ever read because he says, this is really the practical implications of our atheism must take us here. If we are Darwinianist atheists, then this is the only thing that, ma- that makes sense, all right? So Nietzsche, which even, if you don't know Nietzsche, he's the guy, he's famous for saying God is dead. Have you heard that saying? Okay, that, that tracks back to Nietzsche. Uh, here, a little humor on that. Um, so the day Nietzsche died, somebody in the subway of New York put graffiti on the wall, you know, God is dead, sign Nietzsche. And the next morning, someone had added another line to that. And the next line said this, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. <laughs> I've always liked that. Well, okay. Good luck with that one, buddy. So you have Nietzsche who, who is a super, super honest about his atheism, where, where he says, listen, if it has been survival of the fittest, then we have to keep letting this thing happen. And he said, in the next 200 years, here's what's going to happen. There will be in humans what he called the lust to dominate. That same lust that a lion has when it runs down and destroys a weak antelope. And he says, there is going to arise the ubermensch, the superman, and he will dominate and destroy weaker humans. And for us to tell him not to do that would be wrong. It'd be like telling a lion to not act like a lion. Same idea. If, if might is right, if, if you can do it, then do it. Okay, that, that's, that's without Christianity. Okay, now add Christianity in. What changes? Well, just some facts for you. In the 17th century, there was a group of people, real atheists, um, some Jewish people, some Christians, men like John Milton, Benedict Spinoza, Thomas Hart, John Locke. They got together and they actually poured over the Hebrew scriptures, beginning with this text right here. This is the launch. And they, what they wrote out of it was their five principles for civilization. Like these are the five things that you must have to actually have a good civilization. Those five things, they are number one, social contract. Like, like there's a social contract between us as people. Number two, moral limits to power. Like you just can't do what you want because you're in power. Number three, the doctrine of toleration. That just because someone believes differently than you doesn't give you the right to kill them. The doctrine of toleration. Uh, liberty of conscience. You are allowed to think for yourself. And then lastly, basic human rights 
to every individual. Those ideas are the cornerstone of Western civilization. And they came from this right here. This is the launching point to those ideas right here. Now, very different from Iran and Saudi Arabia. They don't tolerate differences, right? They destroy them. Very different. Informed by this right here. Healthcare. I mentioned this a bunch of times. Healthcare came from Christians. So there's a guy, his name is Professor Ferngren. You can Google his name. He's an Oregon State University professor. Absolutely brilliant, obviously. And he writes about, someone just scoffs. <laughs> he writes about how um, it was Christians that brought about healthcare. You go 2,000 years ago, when there was a plague in the city, guess what happened? The wealthy, the powerful, the healthy left. And then all that would remain in that city, like Carthage or whatever it is, all that would remain were those that were dying, those that were old, those that were young, those that were ill. And then they would just die. Well, the Christians stopped that. When there was a plague in a city, the pagans would run and the Christians would run in. And they started caring for, helping, assisting. Um, and, and what they found was about a third to half of people survived when they were just given some water and given some food, like just basic needs being met instead of abandoned. And then Ferngen writes this, and I quote, um, it was, healthcare, that care was informed because of the Imago Dei. That what Christians had said, this is intolerable to leave people by the side of the road to die. This is intolerable to allow ill people to die that way. We will not tolerate it. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. They deserve all right, another guy, big name. Um, he's a scholar at Cornell. His name is Brian, he, I, I think he's actually passed away. Brian, Brian Tierney, just Google him. He just says, what we hold dear, and he, he's not a uh, pastor of a church. Um, he says, what we hold dear as a nation came through the church via scripture. And he writes just volumes and volumes proving that. Like the history of Christianity is brilliant. Yeah, we've made mistakes, no doubt about it. But the good that the gospel has brought to the world, oh, it's amazing. I, I'm proud to be a pursuer of Jesus. When you look at how the, the, the Imago Dei has informed so many things about us. It's awesome. So lastly, what are the implications of this? What are the implications now that we kind of know, okay, it's Imago Dei, every single human has this status. What does this do for me? What does this do for you? Um, we are, I think, America, where we're moving, we're one of the most mixed up cultures ever. So the ancients just had it. They're like, well, might is right, right? And they lived that way. If you can, you do it, right? That, that was their ethic. And they lived by it, I'm real honest. But today, here's what we want. We wanna do away with God and we wanna do away with Jesus, but we wanna maintain justice, and dignity and status and Imago Dei. So we, we really wanna get rid of God, but we like like these benefits. We don't want God, but we like the justice and we like those things, okay? So uh, there, there's a guy I love, his name is G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote this a hundred years ago. I just thought, this is so brilliant. He saw it. L listen to what he writes about how mixed up of a, uh, the West is becoming. This is what he writes, and I quote, quote, as a politician, the secular person will cry out that all war is a waste of life. 
And then as a philosopher, admit that all life is a waste of time. (laughs) The secular person first goes to a political meeting where he complains the natives are being treated as if they are beasts. Then he goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that all human beings actually are beasts. Do you see that? It's exactly our culture today. There's no coherence to it anymore. Hey, we, we, we you know, survival of the fittest. We came up through this, this chain. There, there's no Imago Dei. Okay, if that's true, then why don't I do Nietzsche's Ubermensch? Because you shouldn't. Why not? Because you just shouldn't. No, tell me why I shouldn't. No reason. Okay, that's honest. So I think, personally, it's only through a Christian's understanding of the Imago Dei that you have a real coherent understanding of how to treat people, okay? And here's what I'd say. There are two things, and I know I'm going long like I do. I'll give you two real quick ones. The Imago Dei, the implications of it to me are these two things. Number one, we love humans, and number two, we hate pharaohs. That's how this informs us. We love humans and we hate pharaohs. So putting it back in the, the, the narrative here, we love humans and we hate, hate pharaohs. So we love humans. We love them from the time they are conceived until their life is at its consummation point. We love the ill. We love the down and trodden. We love the addict. With the person who who's, feels like, you know, like we think they're almost worthless. We love them all. Why? Because there is an implicit value to every single human, period. So I took care of this guy named Juan Carlos in Mexico for about four months. He was 20 years old at the time. He had the mental capacity of a six-month-old. He is of infinite more value than Grumpy the Cat who made $100 million on the internet in the last two years. Why? Because he is the Imago Dei. So it informs that. I look at people, no matter who they are, what they've done, I look at them and say, you have value, period. Right? James puts it like this. James grabs this same idea. In James 3.9, he says this. With the same mouth, you bless God and you curse men who are created in the likeness of God or literally the image of God. He goes, how can that be? Don't you know what you're doing? You are cursing the image bearers of God. You are cursing those that are supposed to be ruling and reigning like God on earth. How can you possibly do that? You ever curse a person? Ever drive behind somebody? And you're like, what in the world are you doing? Are you texting on your phone? You, you, Imago Day. <laughs> you ever? I mean, it's like, ugh. So James just brings it real close. How can you talk about other people that way? How can you do that? They're image bearers of God. And I'll tell you, we live in a time now where there's an ability to talk about people like never before. It's called the internet. The comments and just the, the vileness that can come out through the internet to me is unbelievable. How Imago days can be cursed in this kind of uh, anonymity of, of your computer screen. 
You ever post a bad comment about somebody? I think James 3.9 informs that. Do you know that hurts people? Like there are two examples that are real recent that uh, are fascinating to me. Perhaps you've read them. You can Google them. Justine uh, Stucco and then another gal named Jennifer Kim. So Justine, she uh, worked for a company in New York and had to fly to South America. So she's flying there. Right before she leaves, she sends out this tweet to her 170 followers. That's it. And the tweet was this, oh, heading to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Yeah, someone just said it. Oh, uh, I'm so white, LOL. Right? She's just, she's just joking. But oh my goodness, as she's on that plane sleeping, guess what happens on the internet? Oh, you can Google her. It goes crazy. She's the number one trending thing on Twitter for quite some time. So she lands, she doesn't know any of this, and then her phone just explodes. And the things that were said about her were unbelievable. Like she just makes this simple comment. Nobody asks for clarification. Nobody's like, nobody does Matthew 18, essentially. No one does that. And because nobody does that, she gets destroyed really brutally. And she gets fired from her job. Yeah. Like she, she just disappears now. She won't come out of her house. That's how bad it's been. And, and here's what I found really fascinating when I was studying it. B- because she was Googled so much, Google gets, makes money every time you Google a, a name. So um, Google made between two hundred dollars and $400,000 off of her. She's a slave to, you know, to Google. We were slaves too. We were the interns working for free, making Google $200,000 to $400,000 because we're Googling her name so much. Destroyed her life. The other one, Jennifer Kim, um, she was on that Amtrak back in 2015, the Amtrak train that was doing 104 miles per hour and then went sideways and eight people were killed, really bad thing. Well, she's a violinist and she had her violin on car number two. So she gets out, she tweets to Amtrak, hey, thanks for wrecking my train. Um, Maybe not the best comment. Thanks for wrecking my train. Can I please get my violin back? It was on car number two. Well, she gets tore apart where people start saying stuff like this, like, how can you be so insensitive? Eight people died. I hope you find your violin under the dead corpses of those eight people, right? And just gets much, I'm, I'm sanitizing what happened to her. Okay, I hear an interview with, just, with um, Jennifer Kim. This is what broke my heart. She said, if, if I was hit in the head and I was to get amnesia, and then I was to go onto Google and just Google my name to find out who I was, and I read the first 100 pages of Google about me, she goes, I would hate myself because of what I read. Now, how disheartening is that? No one asked her, hey, you know, did you understand? Did you know eight people had died? She didn't know any of that information. She's just saying, I, I need my violin back. I'm, I'm, that's what I do for work. It's amazing to me. James 3.9 would say this, be very careful. Be very careful about what you say about other people because they are created in the image of God. They are image bearers of God. Jesus puts it like this. He says, love your enemies. Those who you think are absolutely, totally 100% against you, as far away as possible, Jesus says, you should have enough love for even them. For those that you completely and totally disagree with, Jesus says, you should have enough love for them. People that you say, I can't believe you did that. You voted for Hillary, I can't believe you did that. You voted for Trump, I can't believe you did that. What, you voted for nobody? How could you do that? How could you waste that, right? No matter what it is, Jesus, Matthew 544, 
says you should love them. That's true tolerance, by the way. Tolerance is not how you treat people you like. Tolerance is how you treat people you dislike. And the Bible says you love them. You love each and every one of them. Our comment should be run through 1 Corinthians 13. Is it loving? Am I doing James 3, 9, cursing the very image bearers of God? So number one, we're supposed to love humans, all of them. And here's what I do. I, this is my, my train for me personally. When there's somebody I see that, that maybe I could tend to be like, oh, maybe it's an addict on the street, maybe uh, somebody that, whatever it is, I always come back to, guess what? There's a mother somewhere praying that this image bearer of God gets off drugs, stops being homeless, stops robbing, stops. There, there's a mom somewhere. Because what that does for me is it takes them out of the, hey, you're this demon thing. It puts them back into, well, you're a human with hopes and dreams, with family, with heartache. It puts it back into that for me. So we're supposed to, number one, love humans. Number two, we're supposed to hate pharaohs. Anything, anything that subjugates humans to mud, brick, baking, slavery, as Christians, we're to hate it. Christians love, or Christians, love humans, we hate pharaohs, and we hate like the pharaohs of pornography. You know why? Because it does two things, it enslaves two people. It's not just some image of somebody. It's enslaving that person. They now become a mud brick baking slave to your passions. And then you get enslaved as well. We hate stuff like that. We hate racism. Why? Because racism makes people into mud brick baking slaves. Something else that they're not. They're no longer image bearers of God. So we hate those things. And so as Christians, if you look at our 2,000 year history, we fight against pharaohs. And we still got to do it. Injustice, wrongs, social structure, that's just, it, just totally wrong. We say, that's wrong. That's a pharaoh. Let's take it out. To me, that's what the implications of this are. We love humans and we hate pharaohs. Imagine, that's hard. It's hard to see my neighbor that way. It's hard to see that addict that way. It's hard. Oh, I know. I totally know. But Hebrews chapter one Verses one through three says this, that Jesus came and it says that Jesus is the express, anybody know? Image of God. That yeah, we're created to be image bearers and we're all flawed and broken. But it says, good news, there came this one. He is the express image of God. He images God perfectly. And if you look at Jesus's life, if there's one mark that I say that absolutely encapsulates Jesus, you know what that one mark is? Selfless giving. He was, he was not about me. He's not about his agenda. He was always about, I'm about giving. I'm about helping. I'm about, to me, the real way that you and I image bear God, the, the, the best way that we image bear God is by selfless giving because that's what Jesus did. And so we come to the table today and, and I don't know of a better way of eating that truth than being reminded of the selfless gift of Jesus for us, the express image of the Father. And so as you eat today, maybe there's somebody that you have been treating as a subhuman. Maybe you're a racist. 
Maybe you look at addicts or maybe you look at um, homeless people and you can no longer see their imago day. I would say, as you eat this day, say, Jesus, change my heart. I don't wanna be that kind of person. Help me to see them the way that you saw them. Give me that kind of love, Matthew 5, that I can actually love my enemy. The person that's hurt me and harmed me or the person that I see this certain way, give me that kind of love. Because at this table, we find that kind of strength where we, be, we become renewed humans that have the strength to begin to live like Jesus. And so, Father, what an incredible thing you did stamping upon each one of us your image. And we look at our own lives and we see how flawed and how dim and how poorly we reflect you. And so we ask this morning, Lord, as we partake in your son's broken body and shed blood, we pray that you would enable us to reflect him well. That we would, as Romans 8, 28 and 29 tell us, that we would be being conformed to the image of the Son. And so if there is in us these tendencies, Pharaoh-like tendencies, we pray that you would crush them in us today. And in their place, you would create a capacity to better reflect Jesus. And we pray this in your name, amen.